Do you love NASCAR and all things racing? Then you've come to the right place. I'm Derek Cope. And I'm Alicia Cope. We are your hosts. And here on Race Theory, we talk about all things asphalt racing. Our life on the road, maintaining good sponsor relationships, as well as balancing our work and family life as a team. Stick around and hopefully our tips and experiences will help you reach your own goals. Welcome back. The last time we spoke, we were talking about my departure from Bobby Allison Motorsports and a decision to go to MB3 with the Skittles brand. And was that a mistake? <laughs> Thought it was going to be the right decision, and it turned out not to be. And one I regret. And certainly thought I had all the right information to make a good decision. And ultimately, you know, it just never really worked out. And it really stemmed from the fact that I felt like the equipment was there. It's just the knowledge of the people wasn't. And we did not have all the right people in the right areas to make the thing work. Just because of inexperience, you think? I think a lot of it was inexperience. I think, you know, they really didn't understand the level of, you know, change from the Bush series to the Cup series. And I think they underestimated the challenge. I think a lot of people do. I think a lot of egos were involved as well, right? And I think like anything, right, you you feel like that a lot of expectation was there. I had just come off of one of my best years of my career, you know, besides winning Daytona and having those wins, right? I mean, really up front every week. Every week I was up front. I mean, I sat on outside pole after outside pole. And in modest equipment. And finished 15th in points. So I really felt like that it was going to be, it was going to be hard for people to put, you know, put this, this struggle on me. Yet I believe, you know, it was a collective group because the team manager and the crew chiefs and the car chief and all those guys were all best of friends. You know, there was brothers and people working there. There's, it was just a, a very lot of family click, groups, very mm -hmm. cliquish deal. Right. And they really didn't want me at the shop. Like I was there at the shop visiting, like I did at Bobby Allison Motorsports a lot. And they didn't want me there. They said, you, you know, you're the driver. You just need to let us take care of the just cars show and, drive and the just car. show up and drive the car. And I think right? that's the way the culture is now, but that's not what you were used to. So the whole dynamic changed and I was, I don't know, I just felt out of place almost. And when we got to go to the racetrack and we started working on these things, you could see right away because I was in the trenches at Bobby Allison Motorsports. I knew every aspect of what was going on and had knowledge of it and understood about what we needed, when we needed it, and maybe why it wasn't working. And we we got off, you know, on the wrong foot. We did not run well. We were not qualifying well, which was really my forte. I felt like that I could I could qualify a car really well. Yeah, that's and one thing you take a lot of pride in. I took a qualifying. lot of pride in qualifying because that is that is you. That's and that you, you is you. over overdriving the car, finding more, putting your balls on the on the you know the line and, and making it happen. And it just wasn't there. The car just didn't have it. And we were constantly talking to other crew chiefs, and they were trying to help. And they were giving them setups. They were working on what we were doing, but we were in total disarray. And the car was, we actually missed some races. Wow. I mean, yeah. We actually missed qualifying for some races, which was, 
I mean, pathetic. <laughs> and I mean, I was fit to be tied. I'm sure of that. And, you know, it's just, and of course, you know, they're looking at me, you know, like, you know, I forgot how to drive in a matter of two or three months. Well, <laughs> screw that, you, <laughs> you know. You didn't was, forget to drive from one year to the I didn't forget next. how to drive, you know, sitting on outside poles and all of a sudden can't drive my sharp stick of a dead dog's ass, you know, and that's exactly what it was being, impl you know, implied. And, you know, honestly, it was, it was a difficult year and we did not really do well. And, you know, like you say, you just, you got, you know, three owners who really didn't know the sport, didn't understand the sport, really hadn't been in the sport. And they're wondering like, what's going on, right? So you're trying to answer questions. You're trying to give them reasoning why, and you're the scapegoat already. You're the scapegoat. Pretty early on, huh? Very early on. And you can sense it. I mean, you can just sense it, right? And, you know, you you listen to the conversations. And I'm a very good judge of character. I'm a very good thing. At, you know, I, I've obviously, I've been in the corporate boardroom a lot, pitching sponsorship deals, reading people's faces, reading what they're thinking, making assessments on the fly. And when you sit in those rooms and those those meetings and the, the boardroom with those guys and the conference room, and you're starting to listen to what they're saying and what they're indicating, and what they're implying, you start to get. Pretty, you're reading between the lines. Read between the lines and you're getting pretty agitated, you know? And, um, you know, you just, you can't make hide nor hair of why we can't make things work. And so one of those years that you just, you fight and you scratch and you claw and you just keep trying to press to make things happen. And then you start pressing, trying to find more, you push the envelope, you do more, um, and you try to make something happen. You know, I remember going to Indy and, you know, not running well, didn't really qualify well the first day, had to go back the second day and, um, had to requalify to go second round qualifying. And I mean, I laid it on the line. I mean, I hung this thing out and, made a, you know, a major improvement, got us in the race and qualified good second day, you know, and my dad was there and it's like, I was not going home. And, you know, when my dad was there, I was like, you know, I was, and he knew what was going on because, you know, like you said, we've alluded to, I, I used to talk to my dad every night after practice and he would know the good, the bad and the ugly. And he knew what I was going through and, you know, he was there in support and, you know, to go out and lay a number on the line there and really get us in the show. And, uh, you know, in a devastating year, it was, it meant a lot. And, uh, that carried us through and got through the year. And I had a two-year contract. I had signed a two-year contract. So I had to, you know, go, we we're going back, hoping that we could rectify, you know, right the ship and fix what was going on. Right. And learn from, you know, get a year under their belt. And hope that they could understand and figure out, you know, what our needs were, why we were not, you know, getting. And again, you had to understand, these were not new cars. These were the old cars that were being discarded by Hendrick Motorsports. They were the used up cars that we were getting. So they weren't brand new cars. They weren't the state of the art updated cars. We were getting their calls. And then we were having, and we had a motor program. And the motors, the engine seemed, seemed good. Right. And they seem fine, but they're certainly not the best ones out of there. Right. But we did the best we could and uh, went in the next year, tried to, you know, make the best of things. And hopefully you went in with a very positive attitude that, you know, we were going to start fresh. And, you know, anytime you get ready to go and you test and you go to Daytona, you're, you're, you're optimistic, you know, maybe guardedly optimistic, but 
optimistic and you have to be that way. I think, you know, it's always a, you know, a new day and it just same, same thing. We just, we're not making it happen. And I, you know, you just knew that, you know, this, this was going to end badly. Yeah. You have this ominous feeling. There's nothing worse than that. Yeah. You know it. And you're, and you're on an Island by yourself as well. And you know, it's coming. It's just a matter of when you have a, you have a contract, but in this business doesn't mean much. Contracts are only as, uh, they're just paper thin. So, you know, again, you know, in this deal, it's big business. These people can buy out contracts. They can do whatever they want to do, you know, but. Well, and you had a big time sponsor. We did. And, you know. The perception is you've got all this money. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They think that you got the best of everything. You got everything going on. You got the right thing. And, you know, it's like, you know, I'm the focal point. The optics look bad. The optics point towards Derek Cope. In the rainbow suit. In the rainbow suit. Yeah. Right. So (laughs) that's got to be the problem. You know, he's front and center. I mean, and everybody else is, you know, talking behind your back. Right. Well, and it was almost like that's kind of a sabotage effort. We've seen that in crew chiefs. We've had some very poor crew chiefs together. And, you know, you, you can see that when there are certain people pitting against the driver. Whether or not you like the driver or think the driver is talented or not, you have to have the ability to talk to the driver and cooperate with what he's saying and trying to help each other out. You do nothing by trying to make yourself the hero because ultimately the driver is not going to drive well when he's not getting information that he needs to get and vice versa. You know, you have to realize too, if you put things in perspective and really think about it, when you get to the cup level, you have made it because of what you've done in the past. Realistically, you don't get there by not knowing how to drive. Most of the guys at that time, they had been in major series. You know, they had served their apprenticeship, come up through the ranks and won everything that you could win. Oh yeah. At that time, it wasn't pay to play. It It was very, you were self-made. You got yourself there by your grit and by your talent. You came there because of your notoriety. People saw you could drive. And if you got there and you proved that you could drive, you could win races and you could showcase your potential. That's what got you a ride and not bringing money. So that's how you became a stable fixture in the sport. So you had you knew that you could drive a race car and that's the reason you'd done it already and not but a few months ago. But then, you know, it is one of those things where you're only as good as your last race. Mm-hmm. And that's how people perceive this. And so you fall out of favor very quickly. And then, I mean, it's like the lava down the mountain, right? How do you stop that? And it just, it just takes everything out in its path, right? And then everybody is trying to save their own skin. Of course. And that's just the way this, this, that's how this sport is. And then no one's going to admit mistakes, which really definitely tears down the integrity of the team because then you don't really know where the problem is. Well, again, they're all protecting their jobs and there's more of them than there is you, right? And how do you get rid of Hendrick Motorsports, who's the engine builder and the chassis builder? You don't. You get rid of the guy that you can hang your hat on as being the problem, and you hire somebody else to try to make yourself look good and right the ship. And that's what was on tap and was coming down the pike. So I think you knew uh, at that time I was in my first marriage, 
And we had a lot of discussions about what was going on. And there was a lot of scuttlebutt and, you know, people talked and you could hear what people were saying. And it was ironic because we were at Watkins Glen when my first wife, Renee, overheard Jay Fry having a conversation with Ernie Irvin. And they were discussing my departure and bringing in Ernie to drive the Skittles car the year after. So at that point, um, Renee accosted Jay Fry and, you know, pretty much laid it out of the line. And of course, then told me what she had overheard. And you knew at that point, your, your time was marked there and you were out and you were in a lame duck situation at that point in time. Nobody cared about you. Nobody cared about what happened. They wanted you to look like the problem, continue to be the problem and make you the problem. And then your exit will aid them in moving on. The last race I ran for the Skittles team was at Atlanta. I finished fifth. Drove my guts out and was trying to make, you know, anything happen, right? Just to prove the point, right? And the next year I had to leave. I was you know, released, didn't sign another contract, brought in Ernie Irvin to drive this car. They did. They did. and. They never had another top five in that team until I think years later when the Joe Nemechek drove the Army car and won at Kansas, I think. But we're talking a number of years later and way past the Skittles deal and, you know, changes in personnel a whole bit. But that was that far down the road before they even had another top five. So I felt like that, you know, it was vindication, you know, that, you know, it wasn't me. And, you know, my job was to go on and find another ride and, you know, gain my credibility back and go be the race car driver that I knew I was. That takes a lot of gumption. You know, it, it could have been easier for you to, you know, kind of bow out and, and try to do something else. Well, this, at that point, you know, I was, that was my life. Um, I relished it. I'd gone through a struggle, but I still had the Bobby Allison years to reflect on and to use as motivation to say, look, you know, this was them, not me. And I'm going to fix this and I'm going to prove this. And, you know, I put my, you know, I put my nose to the ground and it was funny because at that point, Johnny Benson was driving the Pennzoil car for Bahari, which was Chuck Ryder and Lawrence Harry. And I had discussions with um, that organization. I met with Chuck Ryder. We discussed the opportunities about me driving for them next year <clears throat> in a two-year deal. We had sponsorship from Pennzoil with the Gum Out brand. I obviously had a relationship in the past with Pennzoil because they bought Pure Later. So you knew some people there and, you know, you felt like it was right back to where I needed to be back in the, uh, you know, the auto parts 
branded, you know, uh, automotive related type products where I was comfortable with, I knew that I could, I could work and make a difference on. And, you know, I think my, my link to an automotive brand was going to be good. And what I loved about the situation with Bahari for that first year in 1998 was that it had a crew chief, Doug Hewitt was a talented, talented guy. He come from the, uh, the North where he ran modifies as a driver. And it was very smart when it come to the engineering aspect, the setup, the geometry, aerodynamics, knew all of that. And lo and behold, we also brought Steve Levitt up there. <laughs> Steve Levitt back from the days who was building cars at Bobby Allison's. He now is going to be building cars at Bahari. So, I have a core group that I feel like is getting me back to where we were at. Same type of deal. Nice organization, nice building, really, really structured from top to bottom. Again, vertically integrated. They do everything. Build the cars, hang the bodies, do the body work and paint, and did their own engines in-house. Same type of cohesive group. Ron Purier was doing the engines and Doug Hewitt crew chief. And did you go to them or did they come to you? Uh, they came to me. Uh, Chuck Ryder came to me and we, and we were talking about uh, the situation. We ended up, I ended up signing with that deal, two-year deal. And Johnny Benson had just left that deal and then, you know, um, and had modest success there. And felt like for some reason, Doug Hewitt and I clicked and he was mild mannered, uh, stayed within himself. What I loved about him, unlike a lot of the crew chiefs I'd had was he wasn't off talking to other people about what to put in the car for setups or needed help or assistance. He needed none. He knew exactly what he wanted, knew exactly what he needed, stayed within himself and made his own choices. That I respected. We hit it off like right off the bat. Went to test at Daytona, we're fast. Went back to Daytona and ran right up front. And actually, I felt like I had the best car. I had a car better than Earnhardt. And well, wasn't that the race that you were contending for a win? And you got taken out on pit road. On pit road. Yeah. I have you, that video. You remember the in movie fact. three? Yes. The movie three shows a lot of footage of Earnhardt winning the race, obviously, right? And if you notice a lot of the footage, you see us running right up front in the top five and then coming and vying for a top three right there with Earnhardt. I mean, just all over him. And I mean, and I'm. I'm laying in the weeds and I have a race car good enough to win this race. Actually, no, I have the better car. I really feel like that this is my race to win. Again. Again. <laughs> Against the same contenders. And one, you know, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, here's Dale. I mean, he has a fast car and he is right there, but I'm better. So as it works out, same kind of affair. Every time he comes down pit road, I come down with him and we're right there tooth and nail. And I'm just, I'm just dogging him. 
I'm not, I, I made a move to pass him at one point and we, you know, I think I can't remember if I took the lead or we like, you know, fell back in line or whatever, but I just wanted to show him that I was going to be a thorn in his side. And I just hounded him. And then later in the race, here comes Earnhardt down pit road. I follow him down. He pulls in his spot. I pull in my spot. He gets ready to leave. I get ready to leave. About the time I pull out, Dale Jarrett had uh, had come down, and I think it was pulling out of his pit or something, and Jeff Burton runs down in there, cuts across my pit early to get <laughs> to his spot because, you know, he somebody got spun out, right, and tears off my right front fender. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Talk about wanting to throttle somebody. <laughs> He's lucky he's still alive, commentating. Oh, that's I wanted funny. to rip his head off. <laughs> okay, and, listeners, that Derek Cope goes from zero to one hundred uh, really fast. Here, he, he's he's not really spiteful like that. Just I'm in not, the moment, <laughs> I'm not. Obviously, the mayor about got it ousted, you know, and uh, it took us out of the race. I mean, we basically finished the race, but you know, weren't even at that point. The car was so aerodynamic. I mean. They had worked on that car. We were so fast. It was probably one of the more devastating races that you felt like you really had the biggest stick, mm-hmm. right? And I just wanted to go beat on them. And you were just laying there waiting and just, you know, I don't know, just biding your time. And, uh, you know, he ends up winning the race and, you know, you didn't get a chance to make it difficult on him. So that's the way it was, whether you believe it or not, but that's exactly what transpired. So <laughs> believe it or not, everybody, that I is what get, happened. I want to get it off my chest. I, uh, I hated that race. <laughs> I hated that deal because we just didn't get a chance to really show how good we were. And, but we had a good year. Um, we went to Atlanta and same thing. That's when they first repaved Atlanta. That place was black and that place had grip and the speeds were high. We were, I mean, you were wide ass open almost. And I mean, for the most time of the race, wide open qualifying in the race, you would like barely lift out of the gas going in turn three and turn one. I mean, just breathe it back three quarters and back to the mat. And then we were running exceptionally well. I was loving it because you were just, you just, there's a sensation when you're in the gas full time, almost the whole time. And the grip level is right there. And the car is like, almost like, feels like it's bent. Like it's just laid over in the lateral grip in the car. Right. And you know, that it's just really got the tire, you know, distorted. The car just feels like it's almost like a, like a U. Like laid over to the right? Laid over to the right. It just feels like the car is just sort of like a U. It's just really gripped and the tire is just like distorting and riding off the rim, right? And you just, you sense that and you feel that grip and you're going so fast and you're in the gas and it's a great sensation. And I remember we were hauling the mail and I think we were, at that point we had gotten up to third and I drove off into turn one and I remembered it until I don't. <laughs> Drive off in there, the right rear tire blows. This thing swaps ends, and I know that I'm going heading backwards towards the fence, and then it backs into the fence and then slams the door, 
into the wall and my head, you know, I hit the I hit the wall. And you went out. And I went out. Yeah. And don't remember and I vaguely, vaguely remember somebody getting to my window net and it coming down. And I remember seeing somebody and then I don't. And then you were out. And I was out. Well, and that's saying a lot because you have a very hard head and you've been in, I mean, a lot of wrecks where you just come right out. And of course, and that's, we're not talking about the way wrecks are now with the soft walls. We're talking about back then. This is concrete walls. Yeah. And these are concrete walls. And even then you were still pretty hard headed. And uh, so that's, that's saying quite a bit, something that could knock you out. And I, you know, I tightened myself in the seat. Anybody that knows this worked with me, I ratcheted myself in the seat to the point of people can't believe how thin you are when the seat lap belt is squeezing you, right? I mean, you couldn't even eat before the race or drink much because you're just, you know, feel like it would be up in your Was that throat. something that you did before Earnhardt's death Yes, as well? I always be- did it. Because I know after that happened, you were, you were pretty cognizant of that as well. But this was something that you had implemented before he yeah. had. I even- never liked to move in the car. I really, and my dad was adamant, you will be tight in that race car. You know, most guys don't like to be tight. You know, they, it hurts. They don't like the feel of it, right? I wanted to be tight. And you can, you know, people will know that, you know, listen to this, that, you know, work with me. I, I mean, I would have a screwdriver. I would pull on the lap belt and they would pull as hard as they could. And I mean, it was tough to breathe, but you lose so much weight in the car. You know, you, as you sweat, the lap belt gives way and you get looser in the car. So I always did that. Right. And I think that's ultimately what saved my life in most of those major, um, wrecks that I've had. Uh, but this one here knocked me out. And it, uh, uh, I got, I woke up, I woke up, um, I rem- I don't remember waking up, I guess, uh, well, they obviously told me you woke I up at some point. <laughs> they, they, they told me I woke up in the, uh, you know, in the info care center, but I don't remember that. I remember at the hospital in Atlanta, um, that I remember coming out on a gurney and I remember the air, it was so cold. I remember the air blowing up and I woke up and I was like, woke up, up your skirt, I woke up, it got <laughs> up I, was cold. I was like, what's going on here? Right. <laughs> so I remember that, you know, but I had, I had, you know, broken ribs. I mean, big time broken ribs. And I had, you know, some major trauma shoulder, uh, you know, was really sore and, you know, was locked up like it wouldn't move. Right. You know, and I had a lot of swelling and, um, you know, Ended up driving that whole year, that whole year with broke ribs. Ended up breaking them again in California later in the year. Chad Little wrecked me getting off in turn one and broke them again. But I drove the whole year where- How were you able to to even sit in the seat with broken ribs? Um, it, it was difficult. I sh- shaved me completely. You know, I have a hairy chest, shaved me completely. And then they use that foam and tape. And I mean, we taped me up to try to get, keep, you know, things from moving. Right. And as much padding as I could put in the seat to get semi comfortable. But, you know, when you think about it, you know, you are, you've got rib supports on those seats. And when you go in the corner, you're, you're hitting those rib supports yeah, and you're leaning. That's what them. I mean is there's a lot of movement. But luckily I tightened my seatbelts enough where I didn't really move a great deal, but you're still laterally when you get those kind of G forces, it pushes you over and you're in pain. And you just, and you're probably not, you're certainly not going to be your best because you're in pain. And I drove the whole year that way hurt. And, you know. And, and NASCAR allowed it back then? 
baby, if you could get in the car, you could drive. And how different, how different. Absolutely. And you didn't even want people to know you were hurt, even though they know you go to the hospital, you know, you got, but you're back to the racetrack. And but you, you're not filling out like paperwork and no, you know, no, you put on a, you put on a brave front. You, you, you come back jovial, you come back, you hop in the car, you just, you grit it out and you are not going to let somebody else drive your race car. Back then, people wanting in, people waiting, making calls, and you don't want to feel Well, and especially what you had just come off of. Yeah. You certainly weren't going to lose your ride over getting hurt. No. And you're going to drive hurt. And, you know, like I said, I relished the opportunity, and I was not going to allow somebody else to drive my car. And so I fought a good fight. And, you know, it came back, and that year, um, you know, we had come back uh, late in the year. It was October. And we had, of course, Steve Levitt building cars. And, you know, we, we built cars, two identical cars. Again, went to Charlotte Motor Speedway. I ended up having the fastest lap in practice, you know, which is a test session, right? Prior to the, the, the race at Charlotte. Had the fastest lap there and came back for the race. And ironically, Renee, my first wife at that time, her sister went to a Rod Stewart concert down at Blockbuster, <laughs> down the road, never even went to qualifying that night. And I sit on the pole. And how awful that you didn't have your wife there with you. Yeah. I, I got the pole, sat on the pole with the gum out car. And after a, a tough, brutal year of, you know, broken ribs, still broke, you know, because I had wrecked in California, you know, earlier in the year and again, and still not feeling good, you know. And, uh, and go and sit on the pole. And the good thing it was ironic because I ran pretty much the exact same time as I did in the test to a T. And I knew coming back that if I could just run that same lap, don't overdrive it, just mimic that lap, make the best shot at it you could. And I did. And run, I think, the exact same lap that we did in the test for the pole. And uh, what, a, what a rewarding night and i know that's one of the most coveted trophies we have here in the studio aka derek's office is your winston pole night winner at charlotte motor speedway september 30th 1998 looking at it as we speak and you've always held that trophy in very very high regard um whatever shop you're at that's one thing that's always in your office you uh you really um have loved charlotte because of that as well. And even though Charlotte's certainly not one of my favorite tracks, it's always been one of yours. And I think you, um, you've always based your effort as to whether or not it was a plus or not on your qualifying. And that was a, a night that I think you took that. I mean, that was almost as good as, as a, a victory lane. Well, I think you have to look at qualifying in, in, in perspective. You are, you don't really always have the best team or the most money, but you always get the same opportunity, one lap or two laps, you get to lay it on the line, right? And it's you against the other 40 guys, right? And it is or all- 43. Or 43, whoever shows up. But I've always felt like that, you know, that kind of lets you really 
prove or show that you have what it takes to lay it on the line because that's when you do. That's when you have the best tire taped up to the gills. You, a car is on the ragged edge. It's freed up. I mean, she is ready. She's on kill and you are on kill and you get to go get it done. And there's a lot on the line. And Charlotte, I, you know, early in my career, I had some really great runs there. I mean, I finished sixth, ninth, 11th, you name it, was very productive. Then I never really had the equipment to go to Charlotte and be one of those guys up front. And to go sit on the pole at Charlotte was, I mean, after what I'd gone through with the Skittles deal, right, was redemption. To go sit on the pole, right, after being hurt all year and to lay it on the line and do that. And, you know, I had Mark Martin, I think, outside, and I led, I was not going to not lead the lap and, uh, you know, ran Mark as hard as I had ever run anybody, right? And the first lap I of owed the race, him. you mean? Yeah, I owed him because he blocked the hell out of me at uh, the Bush race. So <laughs> I raced him hard. And we know? and we love Mark Martin. <laughs> yes, I love Mark. But, <laughs> you know, so, uh, but yeah, you know, I got the lead and, you know, ran hard and, you know, ended up, I think we finished maybe 15th, right, as a, you know, uh, in the race, something like that, but it's a good effort. Right. Um, and you know, it, very rewarding and, uh, you know, ironic, my wife had to come home that night and I'm sitting on the couch with my shorts and my sweatshirt watching TV. <laughs> and, uh, you know, you know, she said she had heard it on the radio. You, did, you guys didn't <laughs> even have cell phones. No, I mean, 98, I, I everyone had a cell phone. Yeah, I think we had cell phones. I don't remember. I didn't call her. I didn't text her. I didn't do anything because she was at the, at the, uh, the Rod Stewart concert Yeah, and she come all the way home and I didn't even, you know, I hadn't, I was just watching TV and she come home and said that she'd, uh, you know, heard it on the radio or whatever. And, uh, you know, come home and, you know, we talked about it, you know, I said, it's just ironic that, you know, you would win the poll and you would have nobody there to celebrate it with, you know? And, yeah. uh, but, uh, well, but yeah. that's, that's sad. But anyways, yeah. that was, that was the end of, of 19, uh, 98 really that was late in the year that was a september 30th like you said or close to october right we went on to to finish the year and uh really was really for all the trouble with you know injuries and stuff you know it was a good year and felt really good about where we were at as a race team with steve levitt the cars we had uh you know dane parentoni was the team manager you know and uh he was uh you know everybody was just it was we were clicking right but there was a lot of dissension between Doug Hewitt and Ron Purier, the engine builder. And there was a lot of pressure being put on Ron to make power. And I don't know if they just were getting complacent or, you know, they just, there was just times where the, the engines just really, they didn't really run that well. And we were still running really pretty well. Good restrictor plate stuff, but the rest of the races, they, the engines weren't really that proficient and we they were looking outside to try to find ways to get better ultimately much to my dismay doug hewitt leaves oh no yes doug doug i think just you know he had put up with ron and they just butted heads and you know doug was one of those guys where he just didn't really you know speak about things and get really you know I read about things, you know, but there was times I could see his, you know, his, the, the struggles, you know, that he was conflicted. He was really upset about the deal with Ron and what was going on there. And, and 
Chuck Ryder did not back him. And he didn't, he didn't stick up for, you know, you know how they say like some wives, you know, when they're leaving or, you know, they, you don't fight for him. Right. You know, and he, he wanted somebody to fight for him, I think. Right. And Chuck never fought for him. And to this day, I just never really understood it. Right. And ultimately you let the guy, that's really the glue that holds that whole thing together. And you let the guy leave. And ultimately it was the demise of Bahari racing. I mean, you're always comes to a point in everything, right? Every empire falls, right? And I mean, it only took one domino, one domino before that thing fell completely on its ass. And I remember, of course, that was the last year of the pure of the Pennzoil uh, gum out deal. That deal was over. So we needed more sponsorship. We needed to have a new sponsor. And I remember we were uh, on the cusp of getting um an audience with sarah lee the meat groups division so we were going to pitch a sponsorship deal for these three brands sarah lee meats which was jimmy jimmy dean sausage brian foods and uh which was hot dogs brian hot dogs right and then it was state fair corn dogs and rudy's farm cold cuts so four brands and a unique deal with four different race car schemes. Yeah, that sounds four, like a marketing dream to yeah. me. Four, I mean, this and was like unheard sample, of. Easy to Unheard brand. of, Yeah, right? So you had four different brands sharing the car, four different brands on the cars and all related, right, with Sara Lee. Kind of like then, what JTG does. Yes, very much so, right? Very innovative and, you know, groundbreaking at the time. And we went to make the pitch, right? All of us collectively went to Sara Lee sat down. Jerry Laner was the president. And I remember this. It's amazing. You remember all these names, but you I don't mean, remember what you ate he yesterday. Made a, he made a, <laughs> he made a major impact on me. And, you know, later on in life, I mean, I was able to pick up the phone and call Jerry. And if I needed some help with a marketing deal, he would even, you know, turn me over to the next guy in, in marketing and, and let me try to figure out, you know, what I needed or help me in some way. So I always managed to have a good relationship with the higher level, you know, presidents or CEOs or, you know, VP of marketing, right? And I worked hard for them. And I think they saw that. And we, we had a good program there. And we went into that and I'll never forget this as long as I live. We're in there sitting in the corporate boardroom. And this is almost like the Knights of the round table. I mean, <laughs> all of us are all there and they're all, I mean, there's a lot of people in there. And we are, I mean, well, that's a big brand. It, it, and they were, I mean, everybody's there, right? And they're all vested. And we're, we're just beating the thing to death, you know, about what we're going to do and how we're going to do it and what, who gets what, and, you know, all this kind of stuff and the numbers. Then it comes down to, you know, you got to close a deal, right? I mean, somebody's got to ask the hard question, right? Well, that's always what and happens. That's also what has to happen, right? Someone's got to be. And they start talking money. They start, we start talking money. And, you know, this deal was started out as a $6 million deal. I mean, and this is what we needed. And. Next thing you know, I mean, you know, they're hooing and hawing and everybody's juking and jiving. And next thing you know, I can see Chuck Wiry starting to sweat. And, <laughs> you know, you know, I can see Chuck, you know, he's starting to, you know, fidget and, you know, and then he's starting to back up on price. You know, we could do this if we did this and we did this, we do that. You know, next thing you know, we're down to like 4.5 or whatever, right? Or $5 million or whatever, you know, it's, it was like 5 million or something like that. We get back to it. Ends up. We get down to about 4.5 million and I told Chuck, shut his mouth. 
<laughs> I said, you just stop talking. I said, we've gone from six to 4.5. I said, are we going to do this deal for 4.5? I said, because you know what? This is the perfect thing for racing for us, four brands. It's unique. I said, this is a dynamic platform and a way to showcase four unique brands. And I said, I want this deal. Will you guys do this deal for 4.5 million? And Jerry Laner says, yes, we'll do it. And it was over. I was like, get me, get Chuck Ryder out the door so I could <laughs> strangle him. We've been in many a boardroom making pitches and hear people backing up on price. And you just want to reach across the table and say, stop. Yeah. If I could have strangled him on the spot, you know, and, uh, <laughs> but you know, it was a good learning experience. You got to listen to people. They were negotiating from across the room and they just kept hammering. They could see him sweating. And they just kept hammering him, right? And sooner or later, you just had to stop him, right? Otherwise, we'd end up with two million bucks and we'd have been bankrupt. <laughs> so, you know, but we left there with a sponsorship deal and went to work. Ultimately, though, the next problem was Chuck didn't have as much money and Chuck really hired the wrong crew chief. He had no experience. He was in ARCA. And he brought him in because he didn't have to pay him very much. And the whole thing fell apart. Went to Daytona. And that's when they were sitting, they were trying to sit down on, on, these, on, the, uh, on the stops and get the cars really low. And we went out, went on the racetrack for my first opportunity in the car. Went on the racetrack and the car burnt four tires off the car. It was so low on the car. Couldn't even, you couldn't even drive the car before it had rubber burnt all the way around the car. And I said to myself, self, we're in trouble. <laughs> Same thing. That year, we, we missed races. We were not competitive. We did not have a good year. I looked like an imbecile. And I just left, you know, a great year, running up front, leading at Daytona, you know, running up front, you know, vying for wins, sitting on a pole, running good, hurt. And all of a sudden, I can't hit my butt with either hand. And it was the biggest disappointment. And then I caught Chuck Ryder in a lie. I was approached at Charlotte in the middle of the year by a guy who was going to buy the race team. He was with Eel River Racing. He was an attorney out of Boston. And I forget his name at this point. But... They come up to me and they start talking to me and they say, well, you know, we're, we're talking, we're negotiating with Chuck to buy the race team and blah, 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 blah. You know, want to know what's, you know, this, I thought of this and that, this and that, right? So I'm thinking to myself, wait till I get my hands around Chuck's neck again. <laughs> so. But you're wanting to strangle this guy an awful lot. I walk into his office and he had a really big, huge office. The door at one end. And I mean, it was a long walk to big Chuck's, you know, desk. I remember a guy who had an office like that. I walk in, close the door. Or not even close the door, left the door open. Walked straight across the room, sat down on my chair in front of Big Chuck, which he always had a big cigar, right? <laughs> Chuck I can says, visualize this. Hey, Mr. Cope, how are we doing? I said, Well, you tell me. I said, I just found out that you're wanting to sell the race team. Chuck gives me that deer in the headlight look, stands up, sets his, his cigar down, walks all the way across the room, closes the door, comes back, says, where did you hear that? I said, from the horse's mouth. I said, he just told me at Charlotte 
that you're negotiating to sell the team. Well, he said, yes. He said, I, I'm looking, I'm looking to get out. Lawrence and I are, you know, looking to sell the team. And this, they want us to buy the team and, you know, it'll, I, I think it's probably going to go through, you know? So at that point, what do you do, right? You're having a bad year. He's wanting to sell out, you know, he still had my, my mower and my chainsaw in the room up there that I was supposed to get for the pole. <laughs> when I got the pole. Lawnmower? Yeah. There was a big, you know, it was for winning the pole at Charlotte, you, you, there was a lawnmower and a chainsaw that Why I was supposed to get. Why would that be the? He kept them. <laughs> I was still pissed off about it. And I said, and when this is all over, I said, I want my mower and I want my chainsaw. <laughs> yeah, we could use the chainsaw So right now. Anyways, that's what happened, right? And sure enough, the story, I'll have to tell you the next time we talk about this, but. Yes, the way that it went down actually is pretty went comical. Down, the way it went down, big business, the big meeting in Boston with, the, with this attorney. And, you know, I think you'll enjoy the ending of Bahari Racing as we know it to become Eel River Racing and what transpired after that. So stay tuned. The next episode is quite entertaining from that standpoint as well. And the bitter truth continues. Yes, we hope you're enjoying the naked truth here. And um, again, thank you all for listening. We appreciate feedback and we will see you next time. Thank you so much for listening. Did this episode give you some value? If so, please follow us on Facebook at Derek Cope and Instagram at Derek Cope double zero and leave a comment or question and use hashtag race theory. We can't wait to hear from you. See you on the next episode.